Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And for a subject of today's episode, I decided to venture back into a darker tale. I haven't done one of these in uh, several weeks, maybe even over a month. And this is another murder that I have researched that came from the annals of Calhoun County history. And the murder happened over in Marshall, Michigan. But the story spans Kalamazoo, Augusta, Galesburg, in addition to the city of Marshall. But I have to warn you, it's one of the sadder tales that I have ever researched and probably one of the most disturbing ones. And I have researched some disturbing stories before, but this one really set me on edge. And it was, well, I'll just let you guys uh, be the judge of that. But I would caution you on this one as to whether you want to have young people in your car listen to this story. It might be something that uh, you want to listen to at a later date if you have other ears that you don't want to be exposed to a horrible murder of this type. And this incident goes back to 1889. So come along and join me. So this story begins on May 29th, 1889 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And this is when a pregnant woman representing herself as Mrs. Emma Francis appeared at the home of Mrs. Elizabeth Harris at 212 Main Street in Kalamazoo, Michigan, seeking room and board. She was accompanied by a man that she said was her husband. The man stated that he was a commercial traveler and would be only in Kalamazoo for a few days a week, usually only on Sundays. And he was seeking a quiet, comfortable place for his wife, who was soon to become a mother. After some discussion, Mrs. Harris was persuaded to rent a room to them. So all proceeded as expected for the first few weeks. The man returned making his weekly visits with his alleged wife on Sundays. Soon after, Mrs. Harris began to suspect something, something that she believed was not right about Emma Francis, especially when one day she introduced another woman named Miss Smith, who began to visit her every few days. She also observed that Mrs. Francis always called the postman inside of her room to give him the letters that she wished to have mailed as she was trying to keep a secret of the place that she was writing letters to. The mail she received, however, seemed to be mostly from Galesburg. So this made Mrs. Harris a little bit suspicious that something was not quite right. Mrs. Harris also observed that the two women often talked about foundlings' homes. Now, foundlings' homes was a term during this period in history that was used for orphanages. These ladies would talk about what methods were used to secure admittance for a child to a foundlings' home. Now, this chatter made Mrs. Harris suspicious even more and she also became suspicious that the man who she had been seeing show up on Sundays 
representing himself as her husband, was really not who he said he was. The more she interacted with him, she was convinced that the man was not a traveling salesman. His hands were rough like a laborer. And after a time, she began to believe they had an uncanny resemblance. She began to think that the two were brother and sister instead of husband and wife. So when this woman, Emma Francis, arrived, she was in her third trimester of pregnancy. And that was when she arrived in late May. And finally, on June 20th, just about three weeks of only staying there at her home, the child was born. A local physician by the name of Dr. Charles Bloodgood was the one they summoned to attend to this woman representing herself as Emma Francis. Now, another very odd thing that Mrs. Harris noticed was that as an expected mother, Emma had made little or no preparations for the baby, and she had very few clothes prepared. The child was a large, healthy baby boy. But oddly enough, the mother showed no love for it whatsoever. In fact, she remarked several times to the doctor that she did not wish to keep the baby and even offered the baby to the doctor. Mrs. Harris even overheard her telling this to others who came to visit Emma in the home. The more Emma stayed in the house, the more Mrs. Harris became suspicious of her actions and motives. She would not talk about where she was from, and when she asked her about Galesburg, she denied having ever lived there or having ever been there. However, on one occasion, she was looking at pictures on Mrs. Harris's mantelpiece and recognized a Galesburg lady in one of the photographs. She also overheard her say to Mrs. Smith as they made references to the Berg, which was their short description of Galesburg. So on Wednesday, July 10th, less than a month after the baby was born, the two women approached Mrs. Harris and informed her that they were leaving the next day. They mentioned that they were going to take the fast train to Augusta, but when they were told that the train from Kalamazoo did not go there, they said vaguely that they would be arranging to go some other way. The following day, they left, taking the baby with them, and this was the last time the two women were seen by Mrs. Harris. So this is sort of the preamble to the story, this very odd incident in Kalamazoo. And on the surface, although it sounds peculiar and odd as the story unfolds, you will see how important it is to later events. Now, Mrs. Harris was a very astute woman and had kept notes of her observations. And at a later time, when she approached the police, she was able to describe these women to a T, basically, and even define exactly what they were wearing in detail. And strangely enough, this matched the description that was reported of two women who visited Marshall on midnight by train, and one of them carried a babe in their arms. The duo were reported to have acted quite nervously when they returned to the train station at 1.50 a.m. that same evening without the child, and then they departed. So the same day that these two women, Emma Francis and... Miss Smith left Mrs. Harris in Kalamazoo with the baby, saying that they were going to Augusta, but there was no direct route or direct train to Augusta. 
Suddenly, two women by the same description appear in Marshall late in the evening, and they appear nervous in character. They're noted by the attendants at that train station, the railroad workers, and they return later in the evening, almost at two in the morning, and they don't have the baby with them, which was noted as being very peculiar, and they were acting nervously, and then they boarded another train, and they left Marshall. So that's some of the connection that was later brought about from an investigation. And why was there an investigation? Well, a few days later, the body of a male infant was found floating in the Kalamazoo River near Marshall on Sunday, July 14th. He was found by a man named Harry Libenthal, who had been out fishing. Initially, the baby that was found was believed to be two months old and rather large for its size, but after examination by physicians, they noted that it had been in the water for several days. And this added to the appearance of the deceased baby as being larger because it was floating in the river for a few days. Now, when the news of the discovery was reported, it, of course, went out on the wire and was carried in a lot of newspapers throughout southwest Michigan. And Mrs. Harris read the story in Kalamazoo in the newspaper, and she contacted the Kalamazoo Telegraph, who in turn sent a telegraph to the sheriff in Marshall. And the sheriff in Marshall became very interested in what Mrs. Harris had to report, and he went to Kalamazoo to interview Mrs. Harris. And he also interviewed the attending physician, Dr. Bloodgood. And they both indicated that the baby was large enough to be easily passed for a child of two months because it was a very large baby boy. And so that would have been the reason that the doctors had examined the deceased child in the, that came out of the river in Marshall, and they misestimated the age of the infant. So a detective from Kalamazoo that was involved was named Tom Warren, and uh, the sheriff from Marshall was Sheriff Alonzo Prentice. And they decided to work together on this case. And they took the information from Mrs. Harris, and they began a search party for these two women, and they began looking in Galesburg and Augusta. And they had detailed descriptions of what these women looked like. So they had an idea of how old they were, color of their hair and the clothing that they were known to have worn. And that same clothing and the hair description and the age of the women was confirmed by witnesses in Marshall. So they had a pretty good idea of who they were looking for. And when they began to search in Galesburg and Augusta, whenever they found women that they believed were the ones that Mrs. Harris was referencing, they would send a carriage over to Kalamazoo and get Mrs. Harris to come in and identify them. And they were unsuccessful at many, many attempts because she said, no, those aren't the women on many of the women that they had uh, brought in as potential suspects in those areas. But they remained undaunted, and finally they circulated a flyer around the two cities with the written description of the two women and what dresses they were wearing. And this led them to a tip that brought them to the home of Harry Dixon, just west of Galesburg. And living in his home were two women who were positively identified by Mrs. Harris. 
and their names turned out to be Emma and Lizzie Young. And when they were interviewed, Emma gave up the father as being George Lemoyne, a driver of a city delivery wagon in Battle Creek, who'd been intimate with her the prior year, she said. The two women claimed that they had traveled to Detroit to place the child in a foundling home, and they were refused because they were not residents of the city. The two returned on the westbound train and stopped off in Marshall and placed the child in the care of Lemoyne near the train depot. So this is what they told the police and the sheriff, is they said that they went to Detroit, basically, tried to put the child up for adoption, came back via Marshall, and stopped to meet Mr. Lemoyne. He took the child, and that was the last they saw of the child. And then they said that Lemoyne returned to them later that evening while they were in Marshall and said that the child was safely cared for, implying that he had placed it on the doorstep of some home in Marshall. Now, the problem with this story is that no witnesses could ever place Lemoyne in Marshall. They never saw the women with any man. The women were entirely alone, at least the witnesses that observed them at the train station. And there was another witness that came forward that saw the women leaving the train station, and I'll get into that in a minute. But the young sisters continued to maintain that they gave the child to Lemoyne and described that it was wearing underwear and wrapped in an old shawl. When the child was found floating in the river, it had nothing on other than a diaper. Now, the autopsy of the infant revealed that it had been choked to death, and there were marks around the neck. Additionally, if it had been drowned, there would have been water in the lungs, which might have caused it to sink to the bottom, but there was no water in the lungs, and the child was found floating in the river. Now, when investigating officers spoke with Lemoyne, he admitted to telling Emma once while in Kalamazoo when the child was crying to choke the little wrench, but maintained his innocence on the charge of murder. The case came down to the courts, and it was between the young sisters on one hand and Lemoyne on the other. So all three were charged with murder. And when the hearings began on this case, it was held in Marshall, Michigan. And this case drew a large crowd of spectators. As you can imagine, this was a very disturbing and upsetting story to have emerged within the Marshall community. And a lot of people during that time period would converge on the courthouses to hear the outcome or try to get news about what actually happened because they were so shocked. And that was a common occurrence during the Victorian era where people would converge on the courtrooms to see the trial, especially when it was a murder case. Mrs. Harris and Frank Easterbrook, a train dispatcher in Marshall, received a combined reward of $125 from Sheriff Prentice for supplying information leading to the arrest of George Lemoyne and the Young Sisters. Now, George Lemoyne was tried first, and the trial began in early December 1889. Emma and Lizzie Young corroborated their stories, and they revealed on the night in question that they traveled to Detroit to visit a relative and then stopped in Marshall and given the child to Lemoyne. An observation of their testimony was that while they each testified separately on the stand without the other present, 
They both gave the same story, almost verbatim. Now, George Lemoyne testified that he was indeed the father, and he was not denying that. He said that he went to Kalamazoo with Emma and set her up in a boarding house. He also went to Kalamazoo when the child was born and saw it then. George explained that he had spoken with Emma about taking the child to Detroit and trying to place it in a foundling home, but had not seen the child since that meeting in Kalamazoo. He had made no agreement to meet Emma or Lizzie in Marshall and claimed that he was not in the city that night. He also stated that he was at Helmer's Drugstore at about 10 o'clock over in Battle Creek and then went home and got to bed about 11 p.m. Now, his defense brought in five men who testified to seeing George Lemoyne in Helmer's Drugstore until half past 10 that evening on July 11th. However, Lemoyne lodged at the home of Mr. Russell, who was the stepfather of the two young sisters. And he testified that Lemoyne did not get home until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning on July 12th. And he remarked the next morning to him that he had sweaty horses to clean off. And he also stated that Lemoyne, when he came in that evening, seemed to be trying to get in without making any noise. So we have this conflicting account of George Lemoyne. And what's a little bit suspicious is the man testifying against him is related to the young sisters. So where his loyalties lie and where the truth was could be probably brought into question on this. But I'll continue. Mrs. Ladd from Kalamazoo also testified, and she had done the washing for Emma while she was in Kalamazoo, and Emma had told her that George had left her. Further, she recounted that Emma had told her that George said he would see the child in hell before he worked hard to take care of it. Another witness, a nurse, Mrs. McCloskey, who helped Emma in Kalamazoo, noticed that she didn't treat the child well at all. In fact, she quite seemed indifferent to the newborn. She observed that she behaved anything but motherly in nature towards the child. She once saw her shake the child and spoke to her about not doing that. Emma had replied, I do not care about the little cuss. And she had asked the nurse to take the child away and even offered it to other people that came to visit in the house. So that was Mrs. McCluskey's testimony. So you have these two different characters in this murder story. And you have two different opposing testimonies from the two accused of murder. Well, the two different parties accused of murder because the sisters were accused jointly. Now, despite all of this confusing evidence in the case and the contradictory testimonies, the jury finally went into deliberation on December 4th, and they returned with the verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree of George Lemoyne the next morning. Now, Lemoyne broke down in tears, and his defense began talking about appealing the case. However, George was a poor man, and he had very little financial resources. So in the days that followed, there was a lot of talk made about his conviction, and many who witnessed the trial and followed it in the newspapers began to feel that it was an injustice. 
and believing that he was not the guilty party in the murder. They believed that the girls were the ones that committed the murder. And so within days, several lawyers in Battle Creek, after the case had been decided, began to talk about taking up the appeal. And they ended up appealing the case pro bono. But in the meantime, Emma and Lizzie Young went on trial and both ultimately were acquitted. Lemoyne remained in jail while the motion for appeal was moved slowly through the courts. And then in April of 1890, Judge Hooker granted a new trial on the grounds of new evidence having been acquired in the case. The new trial didn't reach the docket until December of that year. So George had remained in jail for 15 months waiting for his appeal. Judge Hooker exchanged the appeal with another judge from Ann Arbor as he didn't want to hear the case a second time. So 52 jurymen were called and interviewed before a satisfactory jury was organized by the court. Now something that was different this time is the witnesses were not allowed to hear each other's testimony. And the witnesses were only admitted into the courtroom when their names were called. Now, this was very distinctly different than the first trial. And when you hear that point, it's very interesting to re-examine how the two young sisters had such matching testimonies. Like They had rehearsed their testimony, perhaps, and they both listened to each other what they said in court. So they were able to get up on the stand and say the same thing that each other had said. And uh, that is in itself a little bit suspicious. So this trial, they were making an effort to really get to the truth in this appeal. Now, among the new testimony were two men, Frank Alexander and Bert Salter, who saw the two women get off the train in Marshall with the baby, and they both saw the women return without the baby. Now, another man, Andrew Burke, testified to seeing them on Eagle Street a few minutes later. Now, Eagle Street is in the vicinity of where the Shuler's Pub is. So here's a third person seeing them on Eagle Street. Now, finally, William Rowland took the stand for the prosecution, and he said he was standing outside of his house on Monroe Street when he heard voices coming from the direction of the railroad tracks east of the railway bridge. And he thought the parties were coming towards him, but it was a little difficult to tell in the darkness. And while listening, he heard a baby cry, and then he heard the baby cry end abruptly. Now, he couldn't see anyone as it was dark out, and he thought he heard two or three voices, women, definitely two women, and another man. So this was among the new testimony that came out in the case. And on December 5th, 1890, the jury finally went into deliberation. And they returned from about a two and a half hour consultation and deliberation, and they returned with a verdict of not guilty. The general belief in the community leading up to this trial was that it would be such a verdict because most of the people in the community at this point who had witnessed the first trial were of the belief that George Lemoyne was innocent. And very few people attended this second trial because Many had attended the first trial and heard all of the testimony. So the case had become somewhat threadbare, you might say, within the county. And on the day of acquittal, few people were in the courtroom. Now, George was able to return to his delivery job in Battle Creek, and he delivered in the city wagons. 
around town, and he had been incarcerated for well over a year at this point. Now, the consensus within the community was that Emma and Lizzie had gotten away with murder. And because the two girls testified uniformly against George, they'd almost got this man sent to prison for life. And because he had been convicted, when when their trial came around, their defense was easy to say, well, George has already been convicted of this. We couldn't have possibly done this. So just go with us and get us acquitted. That was essentially the, the grounds for their argument, that they had nothing to do with it. And they just maintained absolute uniformity in their testimony that they had no idea the child was deceased. And it's hard to prove otherwise, but when you weigh in the testimony from Mrs. Harris in Kalamazoo and their suspicious behavior, and you weigh in the testimony of the nurse in Kalamazoo and all the other witnesses that came forward about their lack of regard for the baby and Emma's totally unmotherly approach to the child and essentially had no affinity for the the newborn, that shines a light on the character of this woman. And the jury in the second Lemoyne trial believed that the young sisters were guilty of the crime and not George Lemoyne. So in either outcome, both of the parties or the all three of the parties were acquitted. George's journey to acquittal was much longer than the young sisters, but in this outcome, the child found floating in the river never had their killers brought to justice. Now, I bring this case up about the young sisters because in my book that I have coming out, which will be coming out in the first quarter of next year, I did a lot of research into trying to understand this particular phenomena that I was seeing in a lot of murder cases from the Victorian era of how women were so easily acquitted or given lighter sentences or basically regarded as not being capable of murder. And there's an interesting study that was done on this. There was a a paper that I came across written by a university student doing a doctorate on the Victorian era. And it was the discussion about society and the law during the Victorian era. And their premise was that there were two regulating factors of feminine behavior during the Victorian era, and it was society and it was the law. And the law was written in an attempt to treat women and men equally when it came to crimes of murder. However, the law was enforced by society. And among the thought of society during that time was that men and women were believed to not be alike in equality. We hear people reference this today as the patriarchal society of that era. But there was something even more underlying on that sort of thing because it came out in many legal cases during that time period. And it was a belief, and a firmly held belief at this, that women, because of their female nature, were not predisposed or capable of the temperaments to commit murder. Murder was regarded solely and almost strictly as a masculine behavior. So when you read cases like this of the the young sisters and you see it going to a trial in a Victorian era courtroom, and the Victorian era was once again from 1837 to 1901, and this was the 
referred to as the Victorian era because it uh, was the reign of Queen Victoria in England. And there was a lot of societal changes in both England and the United States during this time. And it was a very different time period in history because it went from the, the world and as a whole went from predominantly a agricultural based economy to an industrial economy. And there's a lot of technology and changes that happened during this period, particularly in the late 1800s. But a lot of the culture and society didn't change or evolve as rapidly. And so it's a very interesting uh, period in history. So when you examine a case like the Young Sisters within the context of Victorian era society, you have women that would go to trial and be accused of murder. And because of the patriarchal nature of the legal system during that time, the entire jury would be composed of men. There were no women serving on the jury during this time period. So we have 12 men sitting in a box hearing a case about two women that potentially that murdered this baby. And this was the case when any time a woman was put on trial for murder during this period. And the men had their own society beliefs, irregardless of what the law said. The law said that men and women are to be treated equal and regarded with the facts of the case and examined as being guilty or innocent based on the evidence at hand. But then you have this undercurrent of society where it was a belief system that women were not capable of murder and that they were not predisposed to murder. So they had to have been some other person that did it other than them. And this was filed as a basic fundamental file in the back of all most of these men's minds. So it's not unreasonable to examine a murder case in retrospect and say, well, were these men predisposed to believe that women were not capable of murder? And therefore, when you were a prosecuting attorney, you really had to build up the evidence on the women involved to convince a male jury where it wasn't as high a threshold to convince a male jury that a man had committed murder. And so this case between Lemoyne and the Young Sisters and this murder of this child is quite an interesting case to examine in Victorian era history as well as the legal system. And overall is this sad tragedy of this infant that was never loved by any of these parties. And it's very clear in their testimony that no one loved this baby. And it would have been better off left in the hands of the nurse or the doctor or someone else. So you have this terrible incident, this sadness, this child that was left unloved and unwanted, thrown into a river, and um, an injustice happens, which was a fundamental flaw in the court system, in the legal system during the Victorian era. And that didn't change until much later. And there are some big cases that came about where women were actually convicted of murder. And large cases, there were some serial murderers that made prominent headlines in the United States. Perhaps one of the most disturbing cases happened over in England, uh, the case of Amelia Dyer, who was born in 1836, and she died in 1896. And in 1869, she became widowed, and she was a trained nurse. 
And she took to baby farming, which was a practice of adopting unwanted infants in exchange for money. And she did this to support herself. But she began drowning the infants. And she did this for over 30 years, drowning over 400 infants. And she was finally arrested in 1896. And no one had connected her to the murders. No one had suspected her because she was supposedly this caring nurse. And these babies were being found in rivers all over England. And finally, a case happened where a infant's body was found in the River Thames with evidence on it that led back to her. And she was eventually arrested and charged. And they were only able to prove a few of the cases connected to her, but they, were, they suspected that she had been guilty of well over 400 different murders. And that's just one case. There were several other cases. There was another uh, German woman down in Indiana, I believe, that murdered several men, and she would solicit ads in Chicago, and they would come to be her suitor, and uh, they would disappear. And then the families would come looking for them, and she would say, oh, they went out west, and no one ever suspected her. And she got away with it for years, like two decades. And there were the basement and the grounds of the farm that she lived on were filled with bodies. And it wasn't until uh, many years later that she was suspected. And there's a lot of interesting, crazy cases like that because the women were not considered to be capable of murder. And so I think looking at this case of the young sisters versus George Lemoyne, it's very difficult to navigate through what the truth was. Maybe both were guilty. Maybe only the young sisters were guilty. Maybe George was guilty. It's hard to say um, because we weren't there and we weren't there to examine or investigate the evidence. And of course, with a lack of a lot of the forensic evidence that we are so accustomed today, when you watch true crime stories and hear about police investigations and the procedure for police investigations, they all were lacking during this time period during the Victorian era and their ability to find evidence that linked a killer to a victim was more limited. Um, they couldn't verify DNA, for example. They couldn't, uh, fingerprint evidence was not something that was uh, common in common use yet. That would not come into common investigations until almost a few decades later. And a lot of these practices that are standard today in police investigations with fiber evidence and all this other stuff that you see on these true crime shows on TV and reading books, these weren't in place during that time. And of course, you have the compounded problem of a victim's body that was floating in a river, and it was only an infant, and there was only one article of clothing on the child, and the only evidence they could go with was what they found on the body itself, which was that it would have been strangled. And so it's a very sad case. It's a very interesting case that came from Southwest Michigan history, and it spanned Kalamazoo, Augusta, Battle Creek, Marshall, and also Galesburg. And it was just a very interesting um, story to research. Now, this is a story that is not in my upcoming book. This is one I've researched since I sent the, that manuscript to publication, and I'll probably spend more time expanding on the research in this story and maybe include it as a story in a future book. Um, but this was one that uh, I spent several hours uh, digging the facts together to put this story together. And it was quite fascinating to explore. And I'll also 
a very sad story from Southwest Michigan history. But if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me and tell me what you thought about this, you can uh, message me through my website at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you are on Facebook, please go on over to my Facebook page called Michael Delaware Author and hit the like button and maybe share it with a few friends out there to help them uh, come over and like my page as well. That would be so fabulous to have all of my listeners checking in with me on Facebook when they are there. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating and sometimes dark and scary stories from Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.